son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Domenech podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with some friends if you find it of interest. Today, I have an interview with David Bernhardt. He is most recently the former Secretary of the Interior for Donald Trump. He is someone who's been within the world of natural resource management uh, over the course of his career, lengthy career in government in a number of different roles, uh, mostly within the Interior Department. And he's someone who has a particular expertise when it comes to his new book, You Report to Me, Accountability for the Failing Administrative State, in which he outlines the different experiences that he had uh, working within government and seeing how much uh, the battle with, uh, within that takes place between uh, bureaucrats and those who are charged with uh, as political appointees with leading the path on policy and so many other fronts uh, plays out in, in administration after administration. Uh, this is the story and the different responses that you get from those bureaucracies to particularly Republican administrations uh, is a major point of concern. David Bernhardt coming up next. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. David Bernhardt, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me, Ben. I really appreciate it. So I've uh, read your book, uh, You Report to Me. Um, do you feel like most bureaucrats in America feel that they report to the American people? Uh, well, I think that many, many do, uh, but many uh, do not. And so that is why I um, sat down and wrote the book. You know, I think at the end of the day, um, it's, it's unbelievable if you work in government and I've now spent over 12 years in one particular agency in a whole different, um, set of, uh, responsibilities. And, um, you know, what has led, um, the government to move from where we might have learned how the government worked in grade school 
to what we have today is quite a difference. And I wanted, number one, uh, to lay that out for the American people and have them uh, have a chance to see um, some of my own experiences and vignettes, but also offer some suggestions of how we might get right back to that place uh, that we can get to, because I don't think it's that far away, in all honesty. I don't seem to recall uh, the section of uh, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill that dealt with the administrative state. <laughs> that right. seems to be left out <laughs> a lot a lot of the discussion about it. Um, what do you think is the thing that, you know, to your point, that Americans may need more information about in terms of how government actually works as opposed to what they may have been taught in grade school? Yeah, I really think that, number one, um, most Americans probably simply aren't um, aware or, um, or frankly, that, that interested. And, and in fairness to them, look, um, they have a lot going on in their lives, and they want one thing. They want better results um, for uh, themselves and their communities from their government, and they simply expect that it should work. And frankly, it should work. Um, my, my big concern is that um, over time, Congress has um, written broadly defined and vague laws, turned that over uh, to um, the executive branch to fill in and clarify gaps. And then the courts have allowed them to, um, those agencies, to really defer. Um, the courts have deferred to the agency's judgment. And then on top of that, as our government has grown to more than 2.2 million civil servants working in the government, the civil servants have forgotten in some instances that, hey, there's a president who's elected, irrespective of party, he's chosen or she's chosen by the American people, and we may or may not like that person individually, but to the extent that there's policy discretion in the law, that rests with the president, whomever they are. And, um, and the job of the civil service is to be the meritocracy that provides help for policymakers to move forward. And um, at times, it can feel like they're working in the reverse. You uh, related an anecdote uh, to that point uh, late in the book uh, uh, that I flagged. One of the more disheartening days of my public service occurred during the Bush administration, right after a congressional hearing, Senator Daniel Inouye of Hawaii, who I had greatly admired for decades, approached me about the subject of the hearing. David, he said, this issue was too complicated for Congress to deal with. How much of this is motivated by that inclination and how much of it is motivated by a more subversive or cunning inclination, which says, I would rather not deal with the complexities of these issues. I would rather outsource it and then complain about it because that's a good way for me to hold on to my job. Well, Ben, that is a very insightful question. And um, that, that, um, that um, vignette that you describe was, was devastating to me personally because the issue at hand was something that only Congress could actually fix. And I realized that, um, you know, clearly uh, Senator Inouye was telling me they weren't going to. You know, he was being as nice as possible about it. And, um, and the truth of the matter is that really is translated 
into this is a problem, but it's not big enough uh, for us to deal with right away because Congress has a, an ability to move really, really quickly when they want to. Um, but but your point is is very, very, very astute and accurate. At times, Congress would like the flexibility to be able to say, hey, we didn't have to get into the nuts and bolts of figuring this out. We just said generally, hey, you ought to work on this. And if the agency does a good or bad job, uh, we will complain. And actually, the same thing happens at a high level with policymakers. Um, I, I, when I was the general count, the solicitor, which is essentially the chief legal officer at the Department of the Interior, you can't imagine how disappointed a high-level political appointee would be when I would tell them they had the discretion to do whatever they wanted on this particular matter because they, would, they felt much more comfortable being able to say to a constituency of some sort, oh, I couldn't do it. My hands were tied mm -hmm. uh, rather than I didn't want to do it. And we have policymakers, and I try and re point this out in the book, policymakers have often enabled – um, the behavior that then comes to um, comes to uh, bite bite the American people back by by giving authority to um, uh, folks within the agency so that they would not actually be held accountable for the decision that they were made they made um, or that should be made. The Department of the Interior's duties for the secretary are that the secretary supervises all functions of the department. And I've always thought that Congress was really wise in writing it that way. You know, supervision to me says um, two things. Number one, it says it's an active activity. It's not a ribbon cutting or um, just passively sitting there. You're, you're in charge of supervising all functions. And two, it signifies an element of accountability, Hey, you know, it, it, you're, I'm, on, I'm on this. And when's the last time you saw something happen in the executive branch and, and saw the uh, leaders of the organization step forward and say, hey, we blew it. We're going to take accountability for it. You know, what they do is they look around and say, I didn't even know I ran that agency. What a surprise. Like, who, who would have thought that would happen? Um, and, and, and the reality is the job is to take accountability. Um, when, I'll give you another vignette. Um, when COVID hit uh, across the country, um, I, I was at the Department of the Interior uh, responsible for uh, the National Park Service. And one of the things that we had to deal with was um, after the, the few days of the stop the spread, are we going to keep them open? How are we going to manage them? And there was tremendous um, uh, angst uh, in, 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 and I was pushed to um, find a way to close the national parks. And as a matter of fact, some parks uh, suggested that they provide video cameras to their employees and lock the gates so that they could take videos and then just put them up so everybody could see them. And I sat down with the uh, – right, that's exactly what I thought. Um, <laughs> we, we, we sat down with the – For the audio we, listeners, I just uh, put my head in my hands. So, <laughs> so I sat down with the ex some expert public health officials that I'd asked to be teach me every single thing I could know learn about COVID. And I said to them, I'm going to make the decision. I want all of your information, but I, I will own the decision. And ultimately, I became very confident that there was very little communi communability of these, this virus 
outside. So I said, we're going to change the way the internal practices work, but we're going to keep the parks open. Now, that led to over 200 million people going to the parks in 2020 that might have not otherwise had, had that as an avenue. But you have to have the willingness to say to folks, hey, I'll own the decision. I'll own it. I'll take the heat for it. And I'll move forward. And one of the things that I felt really fortunate about in working with President Trump is, you know, he gave me clear direction and then allowed me to to move forward and be accountable. And I think all of us need to recognize that that's a big part of the job of all public servants is accepting a little bit of accountability. Uh, I'm going to have a little cul-de-sac here because I want to get back to the discussion of the bureaucracy. But you bring up the national parks. I'm curious a little bit about your perspective on the parks and uh, and how they're functioning currently and whether they're fulfilling the kind of uh, American functions that we would like them to in terms of drawing people to them. Uh, you know, there have been all these reports, you know, in uh, recent years of the kind of uh, the the parks that are super popular where, you know, you have to kind of line up or get a ticket or have a reservation in order to get in uh, because of of the number of people who flock to them. Uh, and then other parks that essentially go uh, rarely visited, uh, you know, never really having any kind of engagement. I know that an enormous amount of American land is owned by the federal government and is uh, under protection. Should we have parks that are as sizable as they currently are, and should we do uh, anything differently when it comes to the parks that we currently have in order to either encourage, you know, people making a greater use of them uh, or uh, to, to sort of say, you know, look, there's there's certain parts of the of, of the, the park system that uh, don't actually function in a way that is designed uh, to help the communities that are nearby. You know, perhaps that land should be used for other purposes. Well, first off, uh, let me um, let me back up a little bit and explain to uh, folks that the federal government does own a massive amount of land in the United States. The Department of the Interior by itself uh, managed about one in every five acres of land in the United States. And that land, frankly, is administered by a number of different agencies the national parks on one hand, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service on another. And then there's also land that's just um, called, you know, used to be called public domain land, but it's a land of multiple uses. And so, you know, my my view of the size of the national parks um, is often distinct from my view of um, the ownership of federal lands because Congress has specifically said these particular areas – um, merit um, a specific designation as as parks, um, and so I think that we have to recognize that like that is a status um, that that has been often you know blessed by communities um, mm-hmm. sought in Congress and 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 they are um, they are uh, particular places. That's different than should those places be open, accessible, and um, and 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 valued and that the the simple my simple view of that is public land that is accessible of all sorts plays a great role in um in helping and fostering communities fostering a love of the outdoors and so i am a proponent for ensuring 
that there's access to these uh, properties. I'm also a believer that there are many in both um, the advocacy space and within some of these agencies themselves that would like to minimize the number of people that um, have an opportunity to visit and participate in the experience. But I can tell you, I still remember to this day being a young child and, and, and elementary school age and getting to crawl in a kiva in Mesa Verde. And what that did to inspire me, not only in the moment, but to learn about uh, these ancient people that um, fascinated me. And, and so I'm a believer that these parks in particular can be used to inspire um, um, learning, inspire history. There, there is also an effort at times to really um, try and prioritize what should be taught in these, um, in these educational efforts. And I think we really should skip, to, uh, you know, stick to the script of what actually happened in these places. But, um, but those are, that's probably more of a cul-de-sac than you wanted to go on. No, 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 no. Big, I have another, I have another question before we get out of the that, cul-de-sac, which is this. Okay. Uh, I have now, I've now done two, uh, uh pieces profiling. Uh, they, they're not out yet, but, uh, I've gone and done interviews and that kind of thing, profiling some rural, uh, members of the house and Senate and both of them separately and independently raise the issue of, uh, illegal marijuana growers using federal land uh, in order to grow their their stash. I was just curious if that was something that came up in your time uh, uh, at Interior uh, as an issue that was affecting these parks. Because obviously, you know, with major swaths of land that people aren't typically going through on trails or the like – uh, that's something that is uh, is very much a, a, a viable way uh, for illegal growers to do that kind of activity. Well, Ben, I'm going to really shock you. Uh, not only was it an issue in the Trump administration, but if you were to go back, um, I remember working on it in the George W. Bush administration. Look, mm. um, and, and to be fair, it's often a, a bigger challenge uh, for some of the forest service areas because of the amount of water uh, that they have. And um, but but there's there are interactions between hikers and um, people that are cultivating illegally or essentially guarding these things. Uh, people completely underestimate the amount of environmental damage that um, illegal activity does um, up and down the border um, in in uh, illegal cultivation of these um, uh, marijuana and other things um, in other places. It is a very, very significant problem. Um, and, you know, it's often areas that are very um, rarely, you know, policed in that in, in the way that a more urban area would be mm-hmm. uh, to get back to uh, the subject of your of your book. Um, one of the things that I think, you know, uh, people assume is that, you know, oh, yes, you have these this large bureaucracy that's in Washington. But when a president comes in. He's got all these political appointees, and those are going to be people who he puts in charge of those bureaucracies, and they're going to have to answer to those political appointees and do things according to what they want, which is uh, you know, a trickle-down effect of what we want in electing this president. Why doesn't it work that way? Well, um, it, it, it should and it can work that way, uh, but it requires a couple of things, and I really try and highlight this in the book. 
Um, in the, in the, uh, my experience in the Trump administration, um, which was for four years, was very different than my eight in the um, George W. Bush administration. And I highlight this in the book that mm-hmm. you could see a few days after the, the election of President uh, Trump, there, there were a series of articles and there was really an effort to highlight um, suggestions of, quote, resisting this new president. And, um, and, and I think that that became uh, somewhat acceptable. And so when I was in the Bush administration, you'd have folks that maybe didn't want to work um, with you in a way that was, um, you know, going to be helpful and you could work around them. But I highlight in the book a whole series of different agencies, political appointees experiencing really um, activity that was counter to what um, they were trying to do. And that, to me, is a devastating effect of the civil service. But here's how you get around it. Um, Number one, you need clear policy direction from the president. Number two, you need to put people in place that understand these agencies and know how to um, understand the law, understand the processes, and understand how to get facts. And then, and then you really, really need um, to, to, I believe, over time, begin to take away some of the self-inflicted um, efforts to not provide accountability. And so that requires some reform of the system. But I believe we can get right back there with a big nudge. But the reality is there's 3,000 political appointees, about 3,500, and there's 2.2 million uh, civil servants. And so there's going to be some percentage um, at any given time um, that are going to not want to be with the program. And that might be one thing when it's 1%, but when it's 2% or 5% or 10%, that ultimately is essentially frustrating the will of the American people. And we can't have that if we're going to have confidence in the outcome of elections. You, I'm sure, are familiar with the, the Russ vote approach uh, advocated for from OMB in the latter days of the Trump administration uh, that would have recategorized a number of different right. officials with uh, authority over policy matters. Uh, in order to make them, you know, fireable uh, employees uh, in a way that bureaucrats are not. Uh, the Washington Post reacted to this by saying that it was assault, an assault on democracy. Um, they uh, de- implied that it was a fascist approach. Um, it was just uh, the most over-to-the-top coverage. And, uh, and Axios kind of did the same thing, but a little bit more muted, not, not saying, not delving into that kind of fascist kind of symbolism. Um, how much of an effect would it actually have to increase the number of fireable uh, officials who could be replaced by the president uh, by 50,000 or 80,000, depending on the estimate? Well, I think um, th- th- that th- what you're suggesting was was called Schedule F. And I think that could have had a, a significant effect. Rainy, you know, reevaluating the relationship of unions in um, the disciplinary process or accountability to have an effect. And frankly, um, eliminating some of the self-imposed mechanisms uh, that agencies have put on themselves in terms of dealing with uh, accountability issues would have an effect. A lot of the, the reality is if you are if you hold a few people accountable, the message gets across really quickly. 
when I was when I was the solicitor at the Department of the Interior, I wanted to have an open door policy. And you would think that's insignificant, right? I want everybody's door open. Um, and I had one person who really wanted to explain to me that he, he thought I didn't have the authority to exp- tell him to keep his door open. And so ultimately we went back and forth and finally I promised him a door and moved him to a cubicle. And um, after that, I had no resistance from anybody about my policies. And, um, but in doing that, I, was, I had to be willing to say, I'm going to do it properly. I might have a complaint filed. I'll have to deal with that. And that is awesome. That, that infrastructure often leads managers to not even want to deal with accountability. And we just simply can't have that. But mm-hmm. I think um, the Rusvat approach was a great approach. It's not an attack on democracy. It's a restoration. And um, that's the bottom line. You know, I'm curious. You, So you have this, uh, you know, long, obviously, you know, a very uh, qualified record in terms of being somebody who uh, uh, ledge affairs, deputy chief of staff, solicitor, uh, deputy secretary, secretary, it's it's kind of you you are in this lane within uh, uh, the work of interior. That's not typically the kind of person who actually gets to be a cabinet secretary. That's absolutely true. In this current administration, just to use one example, um, you know, we have over at HHS, as I say this as a former HHS uh, Schedule C, uh, someone who literally never interacted with health policy as the secretary – um, you know, before coming to Washington, uh, they, I mean, they're a lawyer. They're, they're somebody who, you know, didn't work in this area at all. They're just there to be a political rubber stamp on any policy that is put in front of them. And, you know, I personally find that insulting because it's the exact opposite. It's like, it, you know, at least if you're going to embrace some kind of Wilsonian progressive approach, to the administrative state, at least, you know, kind of do the, the 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 very scant move of having someone who has some expertise in the area. But when it comes to that kind of role, doesn't it lead to a completely changed attitude toward the entity as opposed to just plucking a, you know, a member of Congress for say, and putting them in, on top of a department. I, I absolutely think it's um, a huge issue, uh, Ben. And um, look, I, when I uh, visited with the president about um, assuming the role of secretary, I had one big question for him. Uh, well, I had two actually. The one is the title of my book, Who Do I Report To? And he said, you report to me. But the second question I had was really important. It was, what do you expect out of a secretary? Because I may not be the guy for or the person for this job, depending on your expectations. So number one, that's important. Uh, number two, I would not, believe me, you would not want me running the health HHS. You know, it's a trillion dollar a year enterprise, right? And and people need to understand that the the problems we face in government are significant. Like if you believe the outcomes could be better for the American people, why would you not try to find a qualified person? Because mm-hmm. if you don't, all you're doing is turning over the agency to the folks that are in it. And they're wonderful people, but you know what they're not focused on? Doing better. And um, and we need to begin to get serious about the problems we face if we actually want to deal with them. And so the reason I wrote the book is to communicate 
that to the American people and say, demand better, demand better. There are a lot of competent people that should be running things that aren't. Um, and people should have the courage to, um, you know, communicate that they want better outcomes from the government. And it's time to give us it's time for them to get them. Uh, you when it comes to the ways that the civil service, that uh, bureaucrats interact with political appointees, one of the things that I observed uh, in my brief time at, at HHS um, uh, was the links to which they would go to slow walk policies or to work their way around the, the doing the thing that uh, maybe their political appointees above them wanted them to do. What are some of the tactics? What are some of the approaches that are used uh, by uh, the you know entrenched bureaucratic system to get around those types of of orders or direction from on high? Well, I in my book, you report to me. I lay out a whole host of them, to be honest. But the one that's the most stunning to me um, is is one that I didn't witness. And no one reported, but she actually wrote a book and reported it herself. And um, that is um, a vignette I have in the book about yeah. uh, Deborah Burks. And and this stunned me. It stunned me that um, th- this uh, person was really actively involved in the COVID response. She was um, developing documents that would go to the public. She had to send them for vetting to some um, task force. They were vetted and edited and sent back to her, and she would adopt the red lines that the vetters had suggested, but then she would replace the language that they had excised into other portions of the document, send it back, um, and then see if she got caught. And if she didn't, she called it a workaround. Now, what's not surprising is that she did that. I used to tell my staff that the minute you give up the pen, you give up control. And so if you give up the pen, you better be accountable for what's in it. So number one, that was on somebody. But number two, and that's an expected practice, but number two, to feel that you can write a book and explain that you did it, like in any other world, that would be viewed as blatant insubordination. Um, And it just shows how far um, the career staff has gone to decide that they, their own views should be superior to even the office of the vice president. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's shocking to me. Um, There is a, uh, there's a story in the book about you uh, picking up trash on the national mall. That's, that's right. Could could you, could you relate uh, what happened with that? Uh, Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, in the, in, I took over as um, as uh, acting secretary during a government shutdown, and um, in 2018, and that government shutdown started in December and went for uh, a, a while. But uh, a few days before, when the shutdown started in the middle of December, it became clear that um, it, it was going to be challenging in some ways, and we had a lot of trash. Uh, on the National Mall. So actually on Christmas Day, um, I went down uh, to the mall and I, and I got a dually pickup from 
um, from the um, Park Service. And what's interesting is they didn't want to trust the deputy secret then deputy secretary with any decent pickup. So they gave me, um, you know, they they assigned me a pickup from I think probably 1985. It looked exactly <laughs> like I had when I was a kid um, uh, uh, at the farm. So I went out and I started picking it, literally picking up trash, and it taught me a lot. But um, you know, number one. Um, the food trucks on the mall are, are really, really um, – maybe they should be responsible for managing some of the, the trash. But that's a whole different story. <laughs> but, um, you know, I had a lot of people ask, tell, explaining to me how awful it was that I had to work on Christmas. Um, and, and that was all great. But um, what it really did is solidified to me that maybe we ought to look for a better outcome. And as soon as I got back to the um, uh, office – and uh, ultimately became uh, uh, acting secretary, I, I evaluated some legal authority we had to put the maintenance folks back to work during the shutdown. And uh, in doing that, the big thing about it, honestly, the trash was important. But the other thing was these folks that are lower wage earners really are harmed in a shutdown if they're waiting for their pay that may or may not come later. And the fact that I could put them back to work, pay them, and take care of um, some of the issues at the National Park Service, I thought was great. Mm -hmm. And so um, I basically um, called uh, the White House and basically said, hey, uh, I actually called the president's uh, secretary and I said, hey, I have this idea, but I need to talk to somebody in the, in the White House about it before I do it so they're not surprised. <laughs> the, the president called me back. I explained to him what I was going to do, and he was absolutely incredible. He said, hey, David – uh, number one, why didn't you do this sooner? Which I thought was the <laughs> number two, you're the new guy. I'm not sure you should take the heat for this. Maybe you should have, um, maybe you should say that I ordered you to do it if it's going to be controversial, which I thought was incredible. And then three, he said, Hey, you're running the department of the interior, uh, get running it. You don't have to call me if you have to do something that makes sense. And I thought that was the best, um, summary of what any manager wants to hear. The president, you know, your, your boss has your back, get get going on your job and don't wait around if you're doing some you see something that needs getting done. And I, and it really represented um I think his approach to um delegating to agencies. Uh just uh, uh one final question before we go. Uh obviously the Supreme Court has the potential to uh weigh in on Chevron deference here. Uh, in a way that I think a lot of people are paying attention to, um, you know, the the truth of the matter is that, you know, whether it happens now or whether it happens later, Chevron is something that seems to be the next big issue this court will have to deal with um, in terms of the ramifications that it would have for the federal government, for the bureaucracy. Uh, what do you think would happen should they, you know, come to a, a decision that either you know, uh, brings it back significantly or or uh, readjusts the way that that deference works, what would happen next? Well, first off, um, you know, that particular case, um, it remains to be seen how far uh, that will end up going. Because here, here's the issue. Um, it's, it's kind of a question about what does silence mean in a in a statute um, as it relates to Chevron. And I, I, I but I think that my book, I really highlight what I believe Chevron has done fundamentally is allowed agencies to want to be more aggressive in their interpretations. 
And and the court, you know, in identifying the major questions doctrine as a doctrine last term, um, recently they they made a decision in the Sackett case about a question of EPA's authority um, and, and its interpretation of, of a statute. And if they uh, deal more with Chevron, what I really do believe it will do is require begin to make agencies be more thoughtful and feel at least there's an element of accountability, which they don't really believe there is. And that has allowed them to move and stretch and stretch farther and farther because it's easier for her either at a low level or at a senior level to say, hey, it would be much easier for us to just stretch the law Mm -hmm. than go ask Congress to give us the authority we want for our policy. And, um, and, and so I think it would be very meaningful for the court to move in this direction. And I think they're heading there. And I think that will be helpful. David Bernhardt, thank you so much. Uh, his book is You Report to Me. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. More of the Ben Dominich podcast right after this. I wanted to note something that's of interest uh, coming out of uh, a number of different reports over the past couple of months uh, that I think we ought to be paying attention to. It's a trend line that I've noted before, uh, but one that I think uh, really is not receiving enough attention, especially during the month of Pride, considering how uh, at odds the approach of the United States of America is to that of the rest of the world when it comes to uh, puberty blockers, uh, the suppression of physical changes of adolescence, and a number of other treatments uh, that are used when dealing with gender dysphoric uh, youth across the world, particularly in the West. Uh, Quoting from uh, a Wall Street Journal report this week, the European medical community, by contrast, is expressing doubts about that approach. Having allowed these treatments for years, five countries, the UK, Sweden, Finland, Norway, and France, now urge caution in their use for minors, stressing a lack of evidence that the benefits outweigh the risks. This month, the UK's publicly funded National Health Service limited the use of puberty blockers to clinical trials, putting the drugs beyond the reach of most children. These countries have done systematic reviews of evidence, said Lior Sapir, a fellow who studies transgender care at the conservative-leaning Manhattan Institute. They've found that the studies cited to support these medical interventions are too unreliable and the risks are too serious. Many countries still allow puberty blockers as a clinical option, including Canada, Spain, and Australia. Some in those countries also are urging curtailment. In Italy, for example, the president of the Italian Psychoanalytic Society wrote a public letter to the Italian prime minister in January, expressing serious concerns over the use of puberty blockers. In a congressional hearing last week, GOP politicians and their expert witnesses repeatedly cited European examples of increased caution and portrayed Democrats and the U.S. medical community as having gone too far in making treatments readily available for minors. I was also interested to read a piece from Max Eden, also uh, from the Manhattan Institute in City Journal uh, this past week, which talked about the degree to which uh, these approaches that are at odds with the European approach are now being applied uh, at the state level. In New York State, for instance, the state is directing educators to lie to parents about it. Earlier this week, he writes, 
the New York State Department of Education published a legal update and best practice document for how schools should serve transgender and gender expansive students. The key takeaway, if your child decides that he or she wants to socially transition to the opposite gender, it is now a best practice for the school to lie to you about it. Only the student, the NYSED declares, knows whether it is safe to share their identity with a caregiver. The baseline assumption, then, is that unaffirming parents are dangerous to their children. If Kevin wants to go by Kimmy but doesn't want his parents to know, the best practice, according to the NYSED, is as follows. The teachers call her Kimmy and use she, her pronouns at school. When calling home for any reason, teachers use the name Kevin and he, him pronouns. Leading experts like Hillary Cass, a medical doctor who documented rampant malpractice in England's Tavistock Child Gender Clinic, have explained that social transition is not a neutral act, but rather an active psychosocial and arguably even medical intervention. Finnish medical authorities have discouraged gender self-identification for children, recognizing its potential to disrupt healthy development and result in unnecessary medicalization. While activists believe that transition is beneficial to mental health, a new study in the UK finds no improvement for socially transitioned kids relative to control groups. Evidence suggests that treating children as if they are the opposite sex can cause their feelings of gender dysphoria to persist and increase the likelihood that they will seek experimental hormonal intervention. If the NYSED had its way, schools will effectively market experimental hormonal interventions. Its new policy recommends that all schools, at a minimum, adhere to the guidelines of the National Sex Education Standards, which state that children should learn about puberty blockers by fifth grade. It may be doubted whether schools would provide the full medical picture concerning the use of puberty blockers, including the lack of evidence for their benefits, the serious long-term side effects, and the near-certain progression to cross-sex hormones that can cause permanent sexual dysfunction and sterility. The National Sex Education Standards also recommend introducing children to the concept of gender identity starting in kindergarten. This is what we are talking about when we talk about wokeness. And so for all of those out there who might talk about the controversial nature of the culture wars, uh, have distaste for the, the level to which uh, they have invaded our lives in the past several years, understand how important these things are how irreversible they are when it comes to these treatments. It's one thing to stand up uh, at the White House as Karine Jean-Pierre and as Joe Biden have, call the people in front of them courageous when they you know, are flashing the cameras and, uh, and hailing the flag of, of pride at the center of the White House. It's another thing to understand what that actually looks like in practice. Not adults making decisions, whether you think those decisions are healthy or not, but children being forced into a situation where they are guided towards these decisions far earlier than they can possibly understand them, and where it is actual state policy for the educators who are driving them in that direction to lie to their parents about what is going on. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We will be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.